Hello. This series of programs is titled toward a more perfect union, not only from a government point of view, but also from a societal point of view. I'm the host, I'm Frank Falvey, and let me introduce uh, our guests this morning, our panelists, uh, uh, the famous PJ, Executive Director of Hey, Frank. Table. I'm always uh, the helper. <laughs> and the incomparable Natalia Linos, who is the Executive Director of the FRXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard. Hey, Frank. And, and a special guest today is Greg Chickalis. Greg is the Executive Chief Officer of MRI Diagnostics. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for having me here today. And Dr. Walker Jones, a consultant in education uh, and has spent a career in education. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, Doctor. Uh, you're you're uh, vacationing. Yes, I am. I'm in Aruba, uh, and but it's happy. Uh, I'm very happy to be with you guys remotely, uh, given that you're buried in snow and it's 85 degrees here, sunny and hot. Can we can we like officially hate you for five seconds? <laughs> yes, that would be fine. I and won't feel a thing. I'm going to judge you a little bit for for vacationing and traveling, <laughs> but I am jealous. And that well, beautiful. After you guys comment on this, I do want to give an international perspective because actually I feel safer here than I absolutely have felt at home in the last 10 months, uh, but more on that later. And joining us later in the program will be uh, Jeff Roy, our representative from Franklin, Mass., and from Medway, Mass. I'd like to begin with uh, some shocking statistics that I just blew my mind. I knew this virus was really deadly for the elderly, but I never ever realized how deadly until I looked up U.S. deaths by age of coronavirus. And this is when there were 279,000 deaths, 85 years and older, 87,000 deaths. 85 years and older, 87,000 deaths. 75 to 84, 75,000 deaths. 65 to 74, 59,000 deaths. And 55 to 64, 33,000 deaths. That's 254,000 deaths, only leaving 21,000 deaths under the age of 55. Uh, it, it is shocking to me in a number of respects that the media has always said it, it, it attacks the old, but never have highlighted to the extent that this is happening. They've, and I've never heard what's happening in nursing homes. How are over 100,000 people dying in what's termed long care facilities? How is it that in each of the categories I mentioned, more than 10% of the deaths in those categories are from coronavirus? I am, I am the 85 years and older represents 
13% of the U.S. population that have died from coronavirus. I'm not a shock. Frank, you're right. It is shocking, and it is something we as epidemiologists have known since the beginning, but maybe haven't been able to talk about. So let me talk about nursing homes or other sort of settings. We failed people living in congregate settings. The biggest problem with the coronavirus is that it spreads uh, in ways that are you know, much faster, and if you're not able to isolate, um, that's you know, what goes wrong. So basically, in Massachusetts, 40% of our deaths have been in nursing homes. We are much, in a much better place right now. We have better uh, rules around visitations, we have some you know, testing, but at the beginning, that was the bulk of people were dying in nursing homes. Now you might say, you know, why is this happening? The weird thing about the coronavirus, Frank, is that it, it displays a tremendous range of outcomes. Some people, especially young people, are able to get it and you know have mild symptoms, maybe lose their sense of smell or you know taste. Maybe they don't even realize they don't even get a fever. And some people get severely sick. And unfortunately, we don't know who you know in which category one will fall. We do know that some conditions make it more likely that you will be seriously harmed. And one of that is having pre-existing conditions, old age, um, and other factors. But I do want to highlight something here. Um, in other shows, we've talked about race um, and the intersection with racism. What we're seeing is that people of color, Black, Latinx, Indigenous Americans are dying at much younger ages. So the elderly are mostly white Americans, and you're finding people who are dying in their 40s and 50s, they're majority people of color. Among children, we've had very few deaths, but 80% have been children of color. So it's important to recognize that age isn't the only dimension, it's the intersection between age and race. And here it's important to say it's racism and the ability of some people to protect themselves and others not to. I'll stop there. <laughs> How are people in, in long-term care facilities getting infected? So at the beginning, what was happening was people were being discharged from hospitals into long-term care facilities to continue their care, and some of them were COVID positive. I mean, it was there was this kind of, you know, you go home, to you're not sick enough to be in the hospital, and so they send people home. You know, go home, take care of yourself. People were being sent home to facilities. That clearly was a big mistake. So that was one of the issues. The other thing is people who work in these facilities are often people who work multiple jobs. You know, you are, say, a nurse or a, an assistant in one of these facilities. In the morning, you're working in a grocery store. Our country has a real problem with inequality. So there are people working two, three jobs. And those people may have been the ones who are more likely to be on public transport showing up. And so they were potentially bringing it in. Same with visitors, you know, young, healthy or in their mind, healthy visitors who didn't know that they were actually asymptomatic carriers were bringing it in. Early on, we thought it was mostly transmitted through people who were symptomatic. You had a high fever, you were coughing, but then we found out that it was happening even with asymptomatic. So all of these things um, came together to create you know, the perfect storm, and it was a disaster. It was a disaster for so many nursing homes. You know, Frank, I could also comment on that too, that the diagnostics have come a real long way over the last several months. And we didn't really have the ability to screen these nursing home workers or these extended care workers in the early days. And we've now, we're now doing that now. We have some nice programs in place to make sure. We really need to make sure that these workers are safe and that they're not infected when they're dealing with these very critical populations. So that's really changed an awful lot now. We have a lot more access to these tests. 
we have a lot more access to the ability of identifying somebody who's infectious right on the spot with some of the newer assays. And once we know that, we're able to isolate them, treat them carefully, and then obviously keep them from infecting other folks. So we really have come a long way, and that I think is going to really help a lot with some of these long-term care facilities. Exactly. Diagnostics are a game changer. You know, when you're waiting for a week to get your results, and that week you may be infected and getting other people infected, and by the time you get your results, they're meaningless. So getting real-time, you know, within 24 hours, accurate results has been so important. We've been talking about the vaccine as kind of the game changer, but I think it's actually the testing diagnostics that are going to be critical in the months forward. You know, I, uh, I have just recently had an opportunity to uh, travel outside of the states. And I know uh, you uh, medical professionals will probably frown on that. Michael, you shouldn't be doing that and et cetera, et cetera. However, uh, I did consult with my primary care. I was just going to say you were violating state law, Michael. Uh, well, 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 I haven't come back yet, so <laughs> it's the return, uh, you know, that's going to make the critical difference. But here is what happened. Uh, I'm in Aruba. Before I left for Aruba, I had to have a test and give the results of that test uh, to the Arubian government. That test had to be within 72 hours of boarding the plane. It had to also have the description of how the test was administered. And if the government, once they got that uploaded to them, didn't like it, they would tell me, nope, this is unacceptable. So you can go ahead and get on the plane. However, when you get here, we're going to test you again. And then they will have, and then I have to be, if I had to get uh, tested, I would have had to have been um, quarantined until the results of that test came back. Every resort, on this island has committed themselves to when a person comes, if they have not been cleared by the government, that you can go to your room, you will stay in your room, we will enforce that, we will bring you food, but until we get the results of that test, you will not be allowed into any general population on this resort. And they are serious about it. I couldn't even get in the cab until I told the guy, okay, did you uh, just pass your test or no? If not, there's a separation between me and the cab driver. Okay, when I got there, the cab driver, again, would sanitize everything before he put his hand on it, whether he's going into the cab or out of the cab, et cetera. My temperature has to be taken. We have been in America so lax. The testing, you're absolutely right. It's gotten better, oh, yeah. but it could have been better from the start. This country shut down for four months. Four months, people couldn't even go out in their own backyard. And people accepted it because they said, with this initial sacrifice, we will be better on the other end. They are now basically uh, much more open, but they're much more diligent. There are places, uh, if I go get gas, I have to have a mask. I have to then sanitize when I'm going inside the gas station. They have the little station there. The lady says, oh, clean your hands. We in America are looked upon, as a matter of fact, the people in this country, and I've had an opportunity to talk to them, they look upon America as an embarrassment to the world because many of the Americans who come here are suspect from moment one. So we may plot ourselves and pat ourselves on the back that we're getting better, but the rest of the world says, you guys are actually a scourge. So how do you address that and stuff in terms of our own population when what we're getting is a false sense of security? And you're absolutely right. 
when you look at the spread, it's not necessarily that the old people are spreading amongst themselves. We're not diligent with everyone from age 12 to 50 in terms of making sure that they are clear so that when they're around older folks who are more susceptible to death, that they're not spreading it inadvertently. I was just going to add that from the international perspective, you know, we have New Zealand that has just recently eliminated coronavirus for them. You know, it's a small country. It's an island. It's easier to control your borders. Um, But, you know, Jacinda Ardern, young female leader, showed tremendous leadership. And her country is now able, and they rely on tourism. They rely on, so they had to get it right. Um, So there are good examples from the international community. And I have been saying since day one, it is disgraceful that the U.S., one of the richest countries in the world with some of the best doctors, some of the best hospitals, the most amazing scientists and, you know, the NIH um, that were in this situation. This has been the biggest failure, I think, of, you know, of, of governance that we have seen, that I have seen in my, gener- in my lifetime. Greg, I've got a question. Um, sure. We know that obviously there's been, you know, decades of research, you know, into the underpinnings of mRNA and and its benefits in turning out these vaccines recently in record time with extremely high efficacy and safety. So that's all great. Um, I'd like to know, to the extent looking forward, how does this pandemic and the progress we may have made with respect to testing techniques perhaps benefited us for such future events? Sure. Be happy to talk about that, and it, and it is too. There's a testing component, and then there's also a vaccine component. That's what's going to get us through this whole thing. Okay, um, we've been running clinical trial collections here at the company for the last four or five months. We're actively testing folks that are COVID positive. Um, they come in symptomatic, or in some cases, we get asymptomatic folks coming in. We were testing family members, and I can tell you, in almost every instance, when somebody comes in here and we detect them and they're positive, and the rest of the family knows that it rarely spreads to the rest of the family because they're aware of the fact that this person's infected, they're doing the right things, but it all comes down to immediate results from a test, okay? If they've got to wait for four days, the family's going to only see the family three, you know, five days later and they're all infected. Okay, we had a number of cases of kids coming back at Thanksgiving that were infected. We had about 25 kids that came to my company before they went to their house. We got two positive people that would have infected their families that were asymptomatic didn't know it, okay? And now we're seeing, probably I've got about 15 families in the region we've been following now, and in every case where we can detect it, we don't see it further spread in the household because people protect themselves and do the right thing. And we see that in the businesses. We see that, we've, we've screened restaurants, we've screened insurance companies, dental offices. We're seeing it over and over again. So first of all, the key is quick diagnostics, and knowing when a person is infectious and when they're not infectious. And what I'm hoping we're gonna find from all this antigen testing that we're doing now is when somebody goes negative on antigen, you know they're no longer infectious. And we're doing those studies right now in comparison with PCR. Which means if you run an antigen test and you're a positive, you gotta be staying away from people. It's just that simple, you gotta do the right thing. But as soon as you go negative on that, you know you're not gonna be infecting your family members or other folks. You gotta get to that point That'll allow us to have sporting activities, as well as do a whole bunch of different things by having these tests. So that's number one. Number two, we're developing a number of different tests on the market for rapid testing right now. And what we're doing now is the first EUA claims allowed us to run them in very complex labs. 
in certain locations, but now we're doing what are called point of care studies and untrained user studies so that we can get to the point where somebody can walk into a pharmacy and buy a rapid test and run it at their house. Because it comes down to getting instant results. If you're gonna wait five days for a PCR result, what's the purpose, okay? And then the last piece of this is the vaccine, which I'm sure we'll get into. These modified RNA derivative vac uh, vaccines, these messenger RNA vaccines are fantastic. There's a lot of engineering that's gone into them. They use what are called analogs of nucleic acids so that look, anything that goes into your body that's foreign, your body's gonna wanna take it out. Your immune system's gonna wanna take it out. So they modify this RNA in a way to trick your body so that it doesn't break it down. And in the case of the Pfizer vaccine, they stick it inside of a little fat droplet or a lipid particle, they call it, and that gets absorbed right into your cell after the vaccine is given. That mRNA then translates into a spike protein. You make one protein from the virus and your body makes antibodies against that. And it's highly effective, very, very effective. Um, and from the studies we've seen, I think they had a couple of adverse reactions out of thousands of people, which may be expected, you know, I don't want to, I could talk for hours on the vaccine and I, I won't do that, but let me just say this, okay? The best thing that can happen to you when you take that vaccine is you don't feel really well the next day. You might have a slight fever, you might be achy. That means you've got your immune system activated. That's exactly what you want. You might have a rough 24 hours, not really rough. You just might not feel great, okay? But that's exactly what you want to see. So anyways, I'll let the others chime in on this, but. I really think between the diagnostics and the rapid identification of sick folks and the vaccines, it's really a game changer we're gonna see over the coming months. I just wanna echo what you just said, Greg, about expecting to get a little bit sick. This is really important. We haven't communicated that well, and because this is a two-dose vaccine, people yeah. need to go back for the second dose. So if they expect it to be easy and then no symptoms and then be like, you know, they might be shocked and not go back for the second dose. We need people to go back. So expect that it won't be just nothing. It shouldn't be very serious, but go back for your second dose. And it's really, really important. So thanks, Greg, for saying that. Sure. And I'll just mention quickly, Natalia, that they're also fine-tuning the antibody assays right now so that we can follow people's antibody titers to make sure they got an effective amount of that vaccine to make sure they're protected. So the diagnostic guys are getting all that stuff in place as well. You know, I just wanted to jump in on the on the governance aspect because one of the things um, that's been frustrating to me as somebody who's in government is the um, the leadership from the top, you know, creating this notion that this is all a hoax, and we're trying to, uh, you know corral people and get people to uh, modify their behavior in the face of uh, a contrarian view of what we're doing. And you, you end up getting into this, uh, this great conflict. Uh, so you have that as a uh, one hole in, in the puzzle. Uh, and then the testing uh, protocols have introduced incredible costs for everybody involved in this in this particular process now uh, greg and i had a meeting with uh, local school officials uh, just about a, a week or two ago and you know talking about the different uh, testing protocols that are available and uh, you know you 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 can see some of the uh, recoiling when 
you begin to talk about, well, it's going to cost, uh, you know, uh, about $30 per student per test. And uh, if you do the math in a school system like Franklin with 5,000 kids, all of a sudden you're looking at uh, these unexpected costs that, uh, that, are, that are facing you and, and you know that's the solution to the problem. So you're, you know, again, you look to um, you know, stimulus aid uh, being uh, slowed down at the federal government level. We still don't have a stimulus package uh, today and it just is it's very crippling to what we wanna do. Those are some of the uh, some of the issues that I, I know we have faced. And on an, on another aspect of testing, and something that I have been pushing since you know back in April and May is, and I think this has a great application in the nursing home context, and that is uh, wastewater testing. Um, we we are doing it um, in the Deer Island treatment plant. That's giving us some very valuable data. Uh, and I know they're doing out, out at UMass Amherst, Arizona, Arizona State University is doing it, University of San Diego. And what they're doing is capturing the wastewater coming out of uh, either dormitories or some of their buildings. And by capturing the wastewater, they're getting advance notice of a problem in a particular building. I think it's, you get three days uh, advance notice. And if you take that information and you uh, combine it with the ability, okay, I've isolated a problem in this particular building. Let's do individual testing of all of the occupants of that particular building. That has been something that has worked uh, remarkably well. And I think it has a particular application uh, to uh, the nursing home industry. And I, I just wished we had jumped on to it a little bit earlier. Uh, in this process, because it is a, a, a valuable uh, set of data that's out there. But it seems to me like one of the aspects that we're that we may be missing, and this is actually for the three of you, Jeff, Greg, and Natalia. I am I am often when I look at this thinking that we, we're approaching this from a really regressive kind of position. I mean, Jeff, when you're talking to the school district and you're telling them numbers like it's going to cost. $30 per student, uh, you know, that may be all and well and good for Franklin, but what happens when you're in the poorest district uh, inside of Boston or you're in a town like Randolph where they have no surplus kinds of funds in order to be able to do that? And so suddenly those folks suffer because they can't afford what we're now entrepreneurizing, if you will, if that's a word, uh, you, you know, this whole approach. I mean, as a national entity, we, should, we shouldn't be talking about the cost. We ought to be talking about the national benefit because this is a health crisis. This is not a, this is not a crisis where those who can afford to pay uh, should be getting the kind of service that, uh, you know, that's superior to those who can't afford to pay because those who can't afford to pay are going to be the ones who are still going to be infected. And as you come around them, it's still going to keep spreading. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and, you know, that's definitely a, a problem that I see on the landscape. But, um, you know, I represent 40,000 people in Franklin and Medway, and they want to get their kids back to school. They want to they wanna, uh, move along. And I have seen 
um, a failure at the national level to get this aid where it belongs. So uh, what is happening is now local communities uh, are going to have to step up. And, and, and what a blessing it is. We have somebody like Greg Chickless in our community who has the wherewithal, the, uh, the, uh, the infrastructure in place. I mean, he bailed us out in a lot of instances with our, with our public uh, safety officials. And uh, he was doing uh, some of our students. And there are communities that don't have a resource like him. And, and, and that's sad. But that's when I talk about a stimulus package bringing resources to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And I can tell you that the stimulus package that the House of Representatives passed uh, four or five months ago would have brought $3 billion to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And had we had those resources, we wouldn't be having this conversation uh, that we're having today. So, um, you know, it's, it's sad that we're here, uh, but this is the, these are the circumstances we've been presented with and uh, we have to do our best under these circumstances. But can you just say, reveal we, the? Can you, you just know, reveal the case that the Supreme Court just decided for people that are new, newly listening to this program? Sure. Uh, so it was a, a group that was challenging the ability of the governor to issue all of the orders and directives that he was issuing. Uh, for example, uh, closing restaurants and closing gymnasiums. Um, he had declared a public emergency uh, back in March, and by declaring a public emergency, he's uh, under the Civil Defense Act, which was passed, I believe, sometime in the, in the 1940s, he's given extraordinary power to issue executive orders. And you saw the whole phasing uh, operation that the governor came out with to uh, control behavior and try to you know, uh, defeat the spread of the virus. Well, people con uh, contested his ability to uh, issue those orders, and they thought that uh, uh, it should be turned back to the legislature to uh, issue these directives and have a say in it. And uh, I will say that some states were successful with these types of lawsuits, but in Massachusetts, the Supreme Judicial Court said, no, the government governor is uh, within his rights and within his power to issue these uh, executive orders. And we do not believe that uh, dictating public safety in a pandemic by committee is the appropriate way to go. We want, uh, you know, we're going to restore and or uphold the governor's power uh, to make these individual decisions. Um, you know, I will say that, uh, you know, I, I am supportive of what he's doing. Uh, you know, we do have to sh shut some things down in order to bring this uh, pandemic under control. Thank God we have a, a vaccine on the way, but that's not for us to be lulled into a, a sense of right. security. We still have to be safe and secure until uh, all of us have been vaccinated. But uh, that case uh, is very interesting reading. If anybody would like a copy of it, uh, just shoot me an email and I will send you a copy. I believe it's around 45 pages of, uh, of reading. But aren't we still ignoring the human rights aspect of this? And I applaud both the legislature and the governor for their efforts. But still, you know, when I look at this from a human rights effort, we're still not addressing 
uh, in our community, both those who are uh, forced to go back to work, those who can ill afford health care, those who can't afford the testing. Uh, you know, what about that aspect, especially nationally? Uh, Natalia, I know you're you're working in that area and stuff. What's the, what's the reaction amongst people that you encounter around uh, the fact that we're not addressing the human rights aspect of this? People, especially people like me who are trained in social epidemiology, are very concerned. We're very concerned of the inequities, not only in the health outcomes. You know, we can say X number of people are dying who are the poorest or the most disadvantaged, but also in every other way. Who is being, uh, you know, who's showing up to work in essential jobs but doesn't have access to protection? Who is being let go and losing, you know, their jobs, losing their housing? Like this there's a multiplier effect. So you have the health crisis, you have the financial crisis, you have a gender um, equality crisis. You know, it's mostly women who are staying home to take care of kids. You have an education crisis because parents who make a lot of money are able to pot up and hire, you know, tutors for their kids and other kids are being left behind. So it is one after the other, after the other compounding, you know, on top of each other. So it's important to be loud and clear that COVID-19 is not the great equalizer, as we were talking about early on. COVID-19 is actually showing us how unequal our country was. And if we do not take targeted action that is explicitly focused on the inequities, we will have a more unequal country coming out of this. And that's disturbing. And it should disturb all of us. I also wanted to add something, Frank, your question about the health insurance, you know, why are they not covering it? The health insurance industry is one industry that has made so much profit because so many of the electives, um, you know, elective sort of surgeries were put on hold. So in August, they reported profits double the rate that they had last August. So I do think, Jeff, that you do have some room to negotiate with the insurance companies and to sort of say, you know, you have benefited from this crisis. And Greg, maybe you can speak to that a little bit, uh, because I do think testing, you know, bringing down the cost, making sure that it's not borne by individuals, but by somehow, whether it's the government or it's, you know, the, the healthcare industry saying, not the healthcare, the health insurance industry saying, we made such a big profit, this is our contribution. I mean, obviously, they're not going to do that. But somehow, we do need to make testing more available to everyone, not just to the few who can pay out of pocket, you know, the $140. And I love, Greg, that you're focusing on the uh, result of when are you no longer infectious. And let me give you a personal story. My kids uh, were possibly had come in contact through their babysitter to possibly someone who had COVID. And the school said, you're keeping them home until the babysitter has two negative tests, six days apart. That was a huge burden. We knew it was a very, very small chance, but that burden on a family is huge. Knowing that your kids are very likely not, you know, it's been two degrees of separation and not being able to send them to school is a disruption. So knowing when you can go back to work, be with your family is really important for the everyday life of people. No, that's extremely important, obviously. And, it, you know, it's always, it's, it keeps on coming back to testing again. Identify those that are infected, get them treatment, get them away, and let everybody else heal. And so as Jeff talked about, we're working with the local schools here. Think of it as an outbreak center. My company's not set up to do large-scale screening. We run clinical trials. We develop a bunch of different diagnostic tests here. We're going to be a point-of-care site for the schools. If somebody has symptoms or if a child has symptoms, they can come here with their parent, get a very low-cost test, and immediately know what's going on. We're offering the same tests at pharmacies in the area. People are waiting four to five days. 
many days for results. It doesn't work that way. You need to, and as these tests become more and more available, certainly that will be fine. There'll be more access to tests. So, you know, but I can tell you right now, it is just amazing to us. I can test a family. I can see inside the tests. We can see what virus levels they have in a certain folks. We can tell when somebody's a very, very low viral load, and we see those in a lot of the asymptomatics. We can see the point where they start going negative again. We just got to do some more studies to understand when these people are safe to be around other folks. And having that information, as you said, is very, very important. Imagine if we get a child that comes over here from one of the schools with symptoms, we run an antigen test, we know they're COVID positive. We can then work back through the schools to get the rest of those kids in the class tested right away versus, oh, just send them home for 14 days and let's see what happens, maybe they pop. No, that's not gonna help. Okay, what's gonna help is getting quick results for folks so we can address the problem and we can move on. Look, I wanna just say one more thing in relation to the vaccine. My blood banks down in Florida are one of the largest collection sites for convalescent plasma in the country. We have got over a thousand donors we've been collecting for more than five months now. Without a doubt, 80% of people are losing their antibodies after 60 to 90 days. If you've had the COVID infection, you're not protected for life. Now, maybe a few folks that have really serious infections, okay, built up a good antibody titer. And we've seen a few folks hold their antibodies, but this is a respiratory illness. This, the virus is in your lungs and it's in your throat, it's in your respiratory. It's not stimulating a strong immune response. That's why the vaccines are so important. Those are given into your blood system. It's seen quickly by your immune system. That's why they're gonna last for a year or longer, right? So if you were infected with COVID, you're protected for a very short period of time. You should absolutely consider after a certain period, I think they make you wait a couple months to take the vaccine to make sure that it's safe to take the vaccine. But everybody needs to be considering this. It's incredibly important for us to knock the virus down. If five out of six people in the room are, are immunized, that virus has nowhere to spread. And that's the take home message for taking the vaccine. Why it's so important to knock this thing down so fast. Then we'll just be dealing with small outbreaks in regions, which we can very quickly get with diagnostic tests. It really should be a game changer for all of us. What I'd like to do um, is, Dr. Mike, you mentioned the word cost a little while ago, and I want to return to that and, and, and sort of reframe it. One of the problems is we don't call it an opportunity cost. An opportunity cost speaks that something really, really good is going to happen in the future if we spend a certain amount of money now. It takes on a preventative approach. And the idea of having at-home testing, you know, what a great opportunity cost if you had that available to families. One of the things we've learned in recent days is that kids are getting infected at home with a greater frequency than they are at school. And so the spread of the infection is actually traveling in the other direction from people who are socially intimate with each other. If the opportunity was there for immediate testing and turnaround, it would go a very, very long way with uh, reducing the spread. I could speak to that personally, knowing a family whose grandparents were visiting, by the way, in their 80s for a month, and the student in the family contracted the virus. And they immediately quarantined. They did all the right things and no one else in the family got it because they had availability to fast information. Yeah. I heard repeatedly from people uh, calling saying, where can I get a test quickly and get the results quickly? Uh, you know, what good is this information to me 
uh, eight days from now. And, you know, it, it, it's, it was preposterous that we were uh, proposing this. I'm so delighted to see that we have come a long way in the, in the testing arena, but, you know, uh, how we're going to get these into the hands of people, uh, how we're going to convince them to take the tests and how it's going to be paid for remains an issue that's out there. Um, you know, it's, it's easy for me. I, if I were calling the shots, I'd appropriate as much money as uh, I could to make sure that everybody had access to testing, because I know at the end of the day, that's going to lead to uh, a much better result. And that's going to get uh, everybody back to uh, normal quicker. Um, but, but you are part of that appropriation process. You know, I'm one of 200. Okay. And uh, we have given this power at this particular moment in time to the governor. Uh, and, you know, I know he's doing his best under extremely difficult circumstances with extremely limited resources. You know, until, until we see stimulus, we don't have what we need to appropriate. And again, I'm going to bring you back to if that package had passed, Massachusetts would have had $3 billion to spend on this effort. And yes, indeed, had that $3 billion come, we would have been much further along the process. And when we were doing the budget for FY21 over the last few weeks, that was one of the questions I raised. So we have a, uh, a budget that we're going to present at this time, and we're not relying on the stimulus money. What is it that we are going to do once that stimulus money comes in the door? You know, given the state we're in, I think we're going to have much greater flexibility to use it properly and to appropriate money to make sure that people are getting testing. So uh, I'm hoping that they do this stimulus package in the next couple of days so that Massachusetts is in a great position uh, to do what we need to do. But my understanding is the stimulus package will include no money for state and local government, and it will not include uh, exemptions for businesses uh, to be sued. So they have decided to put those two issues on hold until after the new president takes office. Disappointing. And you know, it's interesting though that when the first PP, uh, the first PPE money and the PPP money came to states, that some states, uh, which were given some flexibility with those funds, started sort of siphoning off some of that money uh, for what would be called state cost kinds of purposes. I happen to be a consultant in Alabama, and the governor there took some of that money. Uh, that was intended for some of their structural kinds of changes um, out of the PPE money uh, and started using it in order to procure testing for all of the schools and building uh, facilities for testing of their students uh, in Alabama. Uh, I was rather curious at first as to how they could do that and then going through and reading it. So, Jeff, I guess... One of the things that I'm looking at is that there's very little transparency at the state level, state, you know, from state to state, because there was very little leadership at the federal level. And some states are getting away with trying to do 
uh, uh, use that money for their state resor- uh, for their state cost. Michael, thank you uh, for that question. Um, it, it is an interesting one and a timely one because uh, I actually had a meeting uh, with the folks at uh, ANF uh, who are making decisions for local communities that are submitting uh, their CARES Act requests. And so the issue came, you know, communities have been spending on uh, COVID-related expenses as they see it. And they are concerned that they have incurred all of these expenses and debt. And at the end of the day, uh, the money's not going to be there for them. So uh, what has happened is ANF has said, we want you to first submit your reimbursement requests to FEMA because FEMA is paying some COVID bills. And whatever FEMA doesn't pay you, we will pay you out of the CARES Act funding uh, that we have set aside. So we had a bunch of communities uh, in Massachusetts that were concerned that they were going to be left holding the bag because this, uh, you know, FEMA was going to say no. And then by the time they got to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts would have expended all its CARES Act funding. So I saw it, uh, you know, right here on a local level, some of the uh, the problems with different standards for uh, how this money can be used. And I am beginning to see some tightening up of that uh, because there has been pushback uh, on that very issue. Um, and, you know, it's, it's extremely difficult. And, uh, and I'll tell you uh, uh, another uh, particular angle uh, involves our uh, factory right here in Franklin that's producing the uh, PPE gowns. Uh, and they were given a federal contract uh, about a month ago to produce 12.1 million gowns out of that factory in Franklin. And they were given a, a $51 million contract. And, uh, you know, some of the giants in the industry were beginning to uh, say, how come the federal government is making these contracts with these small businesses uh, when we can produce the gowns and we have the uh, infrastructure already in place? Um, why are you giving them the business? And I loved the response of, uh, of Peter from Contolo. And he said, because I'm charging $4.77 a gown and you're charging $20 a gown. So the federal government should do business with us. But, uh, you know, you're seeing these types of fights out there uh, and some of the usual players who were getting the government contracts weren't getting them. So a lot of stuff happening in that very space. And, uh, you know, we're keeping our eye on it. It's interesting. Uh, I want to double back. uh, And, uh, you know, Greg, you may have a thought on this as well, Jeff, too. Returning to the whole notion of what I brought up earlier, opportunity cost, one of the issues I think that we have is that there is a displacement between the opportunity and the cost. In other words, somebody's got to pay the tab, but that somebody is not the direct beneficiary of the outcome. It's a third party, whether it's the insurance companies or the federal government or whoever. 
So because of the fact that we don't have direct linkage between the expenditures and the benefits, or at least it's perceived as such, um, that I think is something that we need to find a way to uh, remedy somehow with better knowledge, better promotion, better whatever. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly talk to that a little bit, Pete. Um, you know, the focus of the entire diagnostics industry is to detect a patient as early as possible in the disease process so that we can get them when they're as healthy as they possibly can be so we can treat them more effectively. So we're always trying to close that window between infection and detection, okay? And trying to make that easy and cost-effective. The average PCR test on the market is 100 bucks. It's pretty sensitive. It'll get folks really early. It takes three to four days to run. Um, it's not a very comfortable test. So the industry then moved to antigen testing. Antigen testing, it's front of the nose, simple sample, 15 minutes, more information, lower cost test, great, you know, identify the sick patient, okay? I'm working with companies right now that are actually using lasers to study saliva samples thousands at a time for screening crowds going into stadiums, okay? So the diagnostics industry is doing whatever it possibly can to get and identify that sick person as early as possible in the process in as cost-effective way as we can. And we have gone from a $100 test to a $30 or a $40 test at this point. And that's been a big help. And we've turned the time down from days to minutes. That's also been a big help, okay? So those are the things that we can do in our industry to help. But, you know, I, I want to be clear on one thing, okay? Anybody can get a COVID test if they have symptoms. If you have insurance of any type and you have symptoms and you go to a testing center, it will be covered for you. The problem we're having is people are getting nervous. I might have known somebody or I ran into something. That's understandable because there's so many unknowns. And they're showing up at these places and they're getting charged $150 for a test because they don't have a symptom, they don't have an exposure or whatever that case may be. So eventually there'll be enough tests for folks for everybody to use. But that's really what's been going on. If people have a symptom, they're going to test you. But Greg, isn't that part of what I was mentioning earlier, which is part of the aggressive nature of the uh, uh, of this process? Because you know, ultimately, some of the things that I know, and it, and in particular, your industry that's doing wonderful at, is coming up with methodologies for trying to analyze uh, people who are asymptomatic, mm -hmm. uh, which I hope is not just a one-off. In other words, these are things that we're going to need actually going forward in order yep. to try to prevent the next pandemic, all yep. right? People who are going into tight places, whether it's a stadium or whether it's, uh, you know, at a venue for a wedding, we, we ought to have means of being able to say there's a possibility of a spread of a whole lot of different varieties. And let us start to be more cautious as human beings around that. Uh, which brings me back to, I guess, what I'm experiencing here uh, in Aruba. Their system is not going to go away. Their system of trying to protect themselves, and albeit it may be an island, it means then that that's a great place to experiment on some of these methodologies. Uh, New Zealand, even though we call it an island, it's a huge island, <laughs> okay, which gives us another level of experimentation. But when you take New England, it's not that much different. I mean, what, what we're looking at is people coming in, whether it's train, airplanes, buses, uh, or in cars. We're trying to protect that environment. 
and we're doing a real poor job of it because yep. there's no consistency, there's no leadership, there's nothing that maintains what I would call just some standards from state to state and location to location. I mean, how do we address that going forward? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's a real tough one, honestly. Um, I try to stay out of the politics of a lot of this stuff, to be honest with you. I mean, you almost didn't. And I almost didn't, <laughs> right. So, hey guys, you know, when it comes down to it with the testing, um, we're just trying to get out as much as we can out there and make it available to as many people as possible. You're talking to a guy that makes the test kits. Wouldn't, don't you think I'd love to have everybody in this country tested 10 times a week? That'd be great for my industry, okay? It's just not happening. The, the fundings aren't there. But I can tell you that we're doing everything we can to be as nimble and as cost-effective as we can to get rapid results for folks. At the state level, state to state, that's a little bit out of my purview right now. I, let me just say one other thing, though, okay? I was part of the pandemic in 2002 with the first SARS outbreak. And we were in, had great relations with China at that point. We got the sequence of the virus. We made molecular screening tests for it. All the CDC labs are activated to get, have those tests in place. We were able to isolate it. By the time it spread up to Toronto, we were able to isolate it and understand what was going on. We found the folks that were infected. They shut down that trade show in that hotel, and they stopped the virus from spreading. Okay? We did not have any information this time until it was too late. We didn't have a chance to get those tests in place, okay, and to have them ready so that we could identify and detect these folks. But in my entire career developing diagnostics, I have never seen an immobilization of my industry like I've seen in the last year. And I tell anybody to go to the BARDA website and check out all of the support being done for diagnostics and therapeutics and PPE. And, and there's a lot, there's a huge political component to this whole thing, which I really don't want to touch. But I can tell you, I've never seen our government work better making tests, making PPEs, getting the funding out there and getting things done quickly. I've just never seen it. The cooperation across my entire industry between the CDC and the FDA and all the diagnostic companies, I've never seen anything like it. And so we can talk about the problems. And there were certainly problems in the early stages with the tests that came out. You know, they left them out very quickly because they really didn't have an option at that point. But I've never seen anything like it in my career. Look, when, when the first SARS virus came out in 2002, I mentioned we had all the tests, we knocked it down, but there were also vaccines made back then. They made a couple million doses for the national stockpile. We then also screened the country for the next several years without a single coronavirus case popping. And after many years, they pulled the, started pulling the test off of some of the platforms. Okay, But our country did a really good job for many years after that last outbreak. Absolutely. If we had had a little bit better information this time, we would have done better with it. But you know what? We all understand the chaos that we had in the early stages. And we all had, that was the, the deck that we were dealt with. Look, as but, I mentioned, yeah. but as an educator, Greg, my position on that is learn from it. Don't ignore it. Absolutely. Learn from that. Set up procedures so that in the future, if, if, we, if we run into this, let's Let's let our politicians take a back seat and let the scientists do their job. Let us not go forward and try to politicize this. Now, I know I may be saying a whole mouthful because politicians, that's what they do. Politicize stuff. Yep. Right. All politicized. <laughs> well, you're looking at one who believes. Uh, I, I believe in science. I, uh, you know, I started out before I got into politics. I was... I was going to school to be a scientist myself. I learned that wasn't my calling. I shifted gears. 
But, uh, you know, I like to view myself as, you know, I view government as taming rivers and providing the opportunities for people to, uh, you know, to have an opportunity to succeed. And part of that opportunity and pursuing uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness means you need to be healthy. And I like the fact that uh, government uh, not only provides us with nice roads and, and nice schools and clean drinking water and clean air, but it has a large public health component. And we turn to the scientists to, to guide us and help us. We put the infrastructure in place, but we rely on them uh, to come up with the ideas. And, and I, I did not see the politicization of this virus in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I'm quite proud of how we address this. Uh, and I'm glad that I live in Massachusetts and uh, I don't think I'll ever leave um, for amen. many reasons. <laughs> I, I, can, I, can, I can say amen to that. Uh, you know, we are very fortunate here in Massachusetts. And since this is a local program, I think we're very fortunate in Franklin too, to have Greg and Jeff and uh, Pete and Natalia and, uh, you know, just for us to be able to talk to our fellow citizens uh, yep. and to let them know what's going on and do it from an honest, open, transparent perspective. So no question. I want to, I want to also just uh, chime in and I think Greg, you might appreciate this as well as Jeff. Uh, when I was talking about opportunity cost earlier and the fact that it's dislocated, uh, I want to go the opposite way now. That is there are existence proofs where when you remove dislocation, suddenly everything works. Good example. We all know what happened last season with the NBA. Yeah, there were some positive tests, but by and large, against my expectations and many people, the NBA succeeded at putting together a season. And, and you know, they, they did it pretty well. Now, what's not widely known among people, you know, they go home, they watch TV at night, they're looking at all the stuff on Netflix, the local channels, networks, etc. How is it that these major production companies are still producing TV shows that involve hundreds of people on set every single day for six and seven days a week? And I will tell you, they are testing rapidly, extremely rapidly, every single person, every single day. The feedback loop between the crew status and what they need to know to protect everybody on that set is extremely tight. Um, and so the story there is the executive producers are the beneficiaries because they get to keep creating shows. And yep. all the testing, well, that's just a cost of doing business that's really, really tiny with respect to their A through K costs in getting the show done. And they're very happy to absorb that cost because they are still in business. So they do that. And people who are in the filmmaking industry, New York, L.A., even some locals here, they're actually healthier for it because they know their status while they're working every single day, and they're happy to be tested. If we found a way from a national, and I underscore national, legislative approach to drive health care in a direction where the cost and the benefits were much more tightly coupled, 
if we could close that loop somehow, I think that we would be in the long term hugely ahead of the game. Right now, that that decoupling is one of the major problems we have with healthcare. You know, I want to spin off of that because you know my area in the legislature has been higher education this year for the past session. So um, higher ed was hit with this crisis. And I have to say the response by our colleges and universities has been incredible. And uh, they have created systems through testing and they are doing some very robust testing. And luckily we have a a place like the Broad Institute uh, out of MIT that is, uh, you know, making the capacity and working deals with our colleges and universities throughout the state to give them rapid results. And, and that has led to an incredible environment. And I was uh, urging folks very early on, back in April and May, saying to our colleges and universities, you are many communities in and of yourselves. And we're gonna look to you to put in place the protocols that we need established to survive in this pandemic. So please go back to your work, get your students back on campuses, show us how this can be done. And I think they have done a remarkable job. Uh, I'm only familiar with Massachusetts, but I will say they have done a remarkable job keeping the levels of infections way down. And it goes to your notion, Pete, that you talked about the, 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 the movie scenes, uh, lots producing that. Well, our colleges and, and universities have, have translated that into a workable model that we can all look to. So you've got the MBA, you've got the uh, film industry, you've got our colleges and universities have really set some uh, great models for us. So I'm, I'm hopeful. Absolutely. I have to say that once again, I feel smarter by proxy being surrounded by Dr. Mike, Dr. Greg, Juris Dr. Representative (laughs) Jeff Roy, and Dr. Natalia Linos. And so for Frank Falvey, this is Pete Jay. And I want to say thank you all for participating in a terrific discussion here on our program, Toward a More Perfect Union. This is Franklin Public Radio.